Welcome to the Grace in Common podcast, a podcast between four friends, all theologians from four countries and three continents. My name is James Eglinton. I teach theology at the University of Edinburgh. I'm joined today by my friends Marinus de Jong, the pastor of the Osterpark Kirk in Amsterdam, also representing the Neo-Calvinism Research Institute. Grace Utento, originally from Jakarta, Indonesia, currently a professor of systematic theology at Reform Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., and Corey Brock, um, originally from the States and now the pastor, or one of the pastors, of St. Columbus Free Church here in Great to be with you guys again today, and uh, in a few minutes we're going to talk about Klaus Skilder, and uh, I'll turn that back over to James to get us started. But before, we wanted to uh, answer a question that's come in from one of our listeners. We've been getting uh, a steady stream of questions in our email, so please keep sending those along. And today's question comes from Martin, and he asked us if we could provide our thoughts on the essential neo-Calvinist reading list. So what would you suggest to someone as they get into the uh, domain of neo-Calvinist writing and theology? What would you say is your first order of text that, that you want to recommend? So let me throw that out there and we can all uh, just build on top of one another. Gray, Gray's raising his hand. Gray, you go. I think one primary text that I would point readers to is well known among neo-Calvinists, but it's not well known among people out there. It's Herman Boving's Catholicity of Christianity and the Church, which was translated in the Calvin Theological Journal in the 90s. It's a wonderful, wonderful text which shows the sort of leavening impulses of neo-Calvinism, this idea that neo-Calvinism believes that, that the gospel transforms everything and that grace restores nature, but in a way that is very nuanced, grounded in classical terms like Catholicity and the sovereignty of God. So I would say definitely go and read that particular text alongside Herman Boving's the kingdom of God, the highest good, which is his own view or his own take of the Kuyperian idea of sphere sovereignty. So those would be the two primary texts I would point to first. That's exactly what I was going to say. So Synchronicity. Yeah. Yeah. Catholicity of Christianity in the church is probably the best singular essay that explains the entire distinctive of the neo-Calvinist understanding of biblical theology and systematic theology. I think that's out there. In, in a short form, I think Catholicity of Christianity in the church does that. Yeah, and I think a very obvious third one would be, you guys are, of course, going to point to Baving, so I, I have the job to point to other figures. So uh, another one would be Kuiper Stone Lectures. Um, it's, it's, very, it's, it's very well known, um, and it's, it's probably also the most quoted text, but it's, it's also not too, not too thick, um, but you can get a Great, great overview of Kuiper's view of culture and, and common grace. And um, so, yeah, I think that there, there will be a third one. And I think if we're bridging a little bit from primary sources into secondary sources, uh, Kuiper's lectures on Calvinism are quite well known. They were delivered as popular lectures at the time, but um, Baving's own critique of them was that these are still not immediately accessible to people who aren't insiders to what Kuiper's talking about. So they're, they're really, they're a worthy read, um, but it's very helpful to have a bridge text that uh, introduces you to the ideas. So there's a great second resource that came out not long ago, edited by Rob and Jess Joustra, uh, called uh, like, uh, Calvinism for a Secular Age, is the main title. It was just published by IVP, and that's a series of essays on chapter by chapter explaining Kuiper's arguments. So it's really helpful and, and also gives you a series of examples of 21st century interactions with what Kuiper was arguing in those lectures in Princeton. Yeah, I think that's what you just said is helpful, James, because it, it depends on where you are as a reader, you know, the, the answer to this question. And if you're, you know, a trained theological thinker and you've um, done a decent amount of reading in the field of theology, you know, I think we would highly recommend jumping into Bovink's dogmatics. And alongside that, I would say read the philosophy of revelation in terms of an overview of worldview and how Bavink thinks theology matters for all of life. Um, but you can't go wrong at all with the wonderful works of God. And the wonderful works of God is Bavink's shorter uh, popular text on, on theology, his one volume theology. And I, I've recommended it to tons of people. 
and it's a fantastic entry into his systematic theological thoughts. Any more before we move on? Great. Yeah, I think that the twin essays here, they really do go together about how reform theology should interact with and engage with modernity would be Kuiper's conservatism and orthodoxy yeah. in the James Brad Kuiper reader, which really talks about how neo-Calvinism is conservative, but is not a conservatism sort of view of how to engage with tradition, but also how it could also engage with modernity. And then and then the second essay that goes along with that is Herman Bobbing's own version of it, which is modernity and orthodoxy, modernity and orthodoxy. That was translated by Bruce Pass, and initially it could be found in the Bobbing Review, but it's also in his brittle volume, which puts together all of Bobbing's theological orations. It's called On Theology. And of course, don't forget uh, the Herman Bobbing biography by by one of our own here and also uh james bratt's biography of kuiper is very helpful as well so uh, the biographies are critical if you want to really dive in to understanding and then lastly i'm being reminded uh before we move on to to also make a, a plug for um gray and i's forthcoming volume uh neo-calvinism theological introduction um and that is going to be really a way of trying to address exactly what, what the questioner Martin had, had asked. And that's what's the what's a way to get into neo-Calvinist reading? Well, we think that this will be. This will be a, an introduction that gives you an overview of the distinctives of neo-Calvinist thought um, in a concise way, but in a way that that's fairly robust. So yeah, that's another option. Yeah, and I think, so Gray mentioned an essay by Kuiper in the James Brett Reader, the Centennial Reader. That reader is well worth getting. Um, so the speeches by Kuiper, the essays, they're all quite short, but what they give you is accessible, quite punchy um, windows into the intuitions that shape neo-Calvinist sensibilities. Uh, there's a stunning essay there called Uniformity, the Curse of Modern Life, for example. I think if you familiarize yourself with those essays or like his essay on the blurring of the boundaries, um, if you read those and uh, take them to heart, then I think what you find, you know, wherever else you read neo-Calvinism afterwards with later figures makes a lot of sense. You can intuit your way around the movement. Yeah, and just a quick reminder that all of this will be in the show notes where you can easily um, find a reference to all those, all those books and articles. All right. Well, today we're talking about Klaus Skilder, and I'll turn it back over to you, James, to get us started. Yeah, thanks, Corey. So... One of the first things that we tried to convey about neo-Calvinism as a movement right at the beginning of the podcast was that neo-Calvinism is bigger than any single figure. So one of the early questions that we wrestled through together was the question of what's the difference between neo-Calvinism and Kuyperianism? We talked about that together. We also talked about it with George Harrink in an earlier episode. And I think the consensus amongst the group was that, that neo-Calvinism is a much broader label than Kuyperianism. And that actually, you know, we, I guess early on, we, we tried to use, or I tried to use the image of neo-Calvinism being like a dialect continuum of different speakers um, who can converse with one another, but who are all kind of distinct in how they speak as well. And then what we've tried to do across series one is draw that out and reflecting on the different figures that we each know about. So today, it's, it's really great to be able to talk about Klaas Schilder. Um, and we have, as one of our uh, co-hosts in, in Marinas, we have a, a proper Schilder expert. Um, so we wanted to have a conversation about him today. I guess if we're typecasting people within the tradition, I've heard you, Corey, talk before about J.H. Bavinck as the neo-Calvinist movement's C.S. Lewis. He writes in, with such a light touch, despite having such profound psychological insights and weaves those together with, with amazing insight into biblical hermeneutics and, and um, it's so rich in metaphor that it almost feels like you're reading something with the lightness of good fiction, but with the weight of proper theology. Um, when I, and, and, I, and I think that's a great way to typecast J.H. Bavinck. When I read Klaas Schilder, what I'm struck by is how he is like the neo-Calvinist movement's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, he fits that kind of typecasting chronologically. So he was around during World War II. He was in, involved in the resistance movement. He was an anti-Nazi theologian. He, he was kept in hiding so he could keep up with his work. But also what I'm really struck by in reading Klaas Schilder is that, and maybe this is because of the context, um, that's shared with Bonhoeffer in lots of ways, that 
when you read Klaschilder, you see the cost of Christian discipleship. Um, so, you know, listeners who, who don't know Klaschilder may well know Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his criticism of, of cheap grace, that, um, that grace actually has to cost you everything, as well as it costing you nothing. You know, it's not, it's not a work. Um, but to give your life over to Christ is to give your life over, and and it, and it may well cost you everything in this life. And you know, it's so Bonhoeffer's account of cheap grace, uh, his critique of it is, is such a powerful and well-known one. And I think that what you see in Klaas Schilder is, is something really similar, that he perceives the cost of discipleship. And that comes across in fascinating ways in how he writes about, um, about common grace, for example. We've touched at a couple of points in the podcast thus far on his criticisms of common grace, as this very central neo-Calvinist doctrine. And uh, so reading the, the Klaas Schilder reader that um, Marinus and, and some other colleagues um, they've just put out has been a fresh reminder to me there that actually when we're talking about even a notion like common grace, we're talking about something that is very costly. So um, Marinus, in the first place for readers, you know, who've heard our, our listeners who've heard his name at various points in the podcast, and, you know, who probably, if they're not Dutch, they're more familiar with names like Bavink and Kuiper, They've regularly heard Schilder as this, you know, loyal opposition within the tradition. This, you know, later figure who offers correctives and critiques. Uh, really early on in the podcast, we also discussed the issue of whether we can call him a neo-Calvinist, and we all think that we can. Um, but yeah, a, a very short like Schilder's life in a nutshell. Um, who was this man? Yeah, so it's it's really helpful. You put him. You you call him like the neo-Calvinist is Bonhoeffer. That 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 tells a lot about when he lived and what his context was. It's indeed very similar to Bonhoeffer. Um, let's, let's try to do this very quickly. Um, so he, he was born in 1890, um, which means he, he was really a, a second generation neo-Calvinist. And he was born into the, the reformed world, the neo-Calvinist world where Bavik and Kuiper were the two dominant voices in the Netherlands. So that was that was like how he was, how he was schooled and trained when he went to seminary. That was his world and the churches he operated in. Um, and so I think that, that that's one very important feature of his context, that, that he, he was a part of that world. And the second one is, I guess, that he, he lived through a very different time than Kuiper and Bavik. Uh, Kuiper and Bavik were 19th century figures. Um, and although they both lived through the First World War, it was towards the end of their lives. Um, they, they died a couple of years after. Um, but for Schilder, it was the start of his working life. So he became a pastor in 1914. When World War One broke out, and while that didn't like directly affect the Netherlands, um, because it was a neutral country, he, I mean, we, we know that in his, his study uh, in Vlading and near Rotterdam, where he was a pastor, he could hear uh, the bombs that fell in Belgium. So I mean, the, it, it was that close by. And then after that, that war, uh, there came a, an economical crisis in Europe and also in the United States, a devastating one. Um, and then uh, the the Second World War. Um, was also part of, part of his life. And um, so it actually, entire, his entire ministry was dominated by crisis and war. Um, and he, he passed away in 1952. Um, he, was, he was only 60, and that was just a couple of years after the World War, so the, the Second World War. So he, it, th this is his context. And then he first worked as a pastor, as I said, for 20 years, uh, different congregations throughout the Netherlands. And then he became a professor of dogmatics, what we now call systematic theology, um, at the seminary in Kampen. Um, so yeah, and then maybe a, a last thing to mention is a schism um, in the, within the, the, the like the Carperian uh, New Calvinist Reformed churches in the Netherlands that occurred in the uh, during the Second World War in the forties, uh, where Schilder was a big part of, and he was so he left the churches um, or he was was put out of the churches uh, and then they started the new domination of about 10 percent of those churches where he became like the, the key figure in um so that's that's very briefly an, an historical sketch of it so i guess one question marinus that that listeners may have in view is what is klaus skilder's distinctive theological contribution to neo-calvinism so why is he neo-calvinist theologically uh, connect him to the kyperian sort of bavinkian uh, strands of theological reasoning within neo-Calvinism, and what are his contributions? James K. Smith in the endorsement, like James mentioned, calls him a loyal opponent of neo-Calvinism. Why is he called that? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So I, I think that what makes Schilder a neo-Calvinist is just the context of it, but it's also reflected. Um, it, I mean, it would just be historically wrong to say he's not a neo-Calvinist, and impossible to say it because he was so much 
in that and part of that tradition and part of part of the heritage um, in, in where he wrote and what he said. But but also theologically, I think we can we can see that very clearly. And he's, he's, he mentions all the time that he sees himself as a student of Kuiper and, and maybe even more of Pavik and, and wants to work in their line. And I think, well, one of the one of the main points um, maybe maybe that we can put on a cre creation and, and recreation, how they are very closely tied together. That is also, I think, one of the key features of Schilder's theology and just something he wants to continue and uphold and maybe even appropriate for a more secular and more and a, a time, more apocalyptic uh, time where he was living in. So that, that was really what it was trying to do is trying to um, trying to keep the the, the like the, the, the unity of life, the battle against all kinds of dualisms that may enter into the church, into the Christian life. Uh, that, that was really also that summarizes his work just as it did, I think, the work of Kuiper and Bavink. So in that sense, loyal and in that line. Um, but then uh, what James Smith also says on the cover of the of the Schilder Reader is indeed that, that he was also in opposition. So he, he was also um, call him a gadfly in, in those reformed churches. He, he was he was he was pushing back against things he thought were getting wrong. And I think it's not as much that he really wanted to change fundamentals of it, but he just saw consequences of certain ideas. For example, the idea of common grace, um, where he thought things going in wrong directions and he warned against it. Um, so James just nicely put it um, as, a, as a way of saying, uh, we, common grace is not cheap. Um, and, and I think that, that, that nicely captures what, what Schilder is trying to say. Um, and he, he becomes very critical. He even wants to like get rid of the idea, uh, of the words at least, not the idea, I think, because he, he, he wants to keep, keep it in place, but, but just a little bit differently. Um, but then by critiquing it, how he saw people used it and how it could become a way of, um, of, of a kind of internal secularization. Um, in, in that common grace becomes like something that, that makes that you don't need to, like that, that you can like get rid of difficult ethical demands of Christianity, for example. Um, and that the difference, the antithesis, is just less important because common grace becomes so dominant. Um, so yeah, I think that is that that is one of one of the things. But there's 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 many more. There's also um, is theology of history, um, and maybe a second one to add already. Um, and I'll, I'll I'll let you guys. Um, a second one is I think that he 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 saw how the church became less important within his own tradition. And how certain ideas in the New Calvinist tradition, for example, the separation between the church's institute and its organism, a classical Kuiperian distinction, could be used in a way to downplay the importance of the institute of the church. So it said that, oh yeah, well, the church is really the organism. So the institute of the church is just for sacraments and just for the Sunday and doesn't really have anything to say for the rest of life. And then it could draw sphere sovereignty in by saying, oh yeah, well, this is the sphere of the church. So the church should just mind its own business and not say anything to politics or anything. And, and this is something Schilder opposed strongly saying, well, no, if we, if the organism and the institute of the church are tied too loosely, then as a church institute becomes obsolete and isolated from the rest of life. Um, while what he was seeing in secular times and in the rising ideologies of communism and fascism and national socialism was that the church was extremely necessary to, 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 to guard and to protect the church and Christianity against those ideologies. So critique on common grace and a stronger emphasis on the church as an institution, I think are two, among, amongst others, two, two of the key contributions he made to the neo-Calvinist uh, tradition. So on top of that, one of the things that's interesting in Bavink is how he emphasizes Catholicity so much and what he calls a broad ecclesiology, he's okay with denominational diversity and he's okay with diversity expressed institutionally because the true nature of Catholicity is in the unity of the organism of the body of Christ, right? Uh, but in, in the biography of Skilder um, in, the, in the reader um, that, that you've produced Marinus with others, uh, one of the things that jumped out to me was how much Skilder is a theologian of unity. You know, he has this massive emphasis on unity as a theological concept. And John 17 was mentioned and, and other things. And yet the irony is that Bavink and Kuiper, you know, unite 
denominations and, and bring them together. And then, as you mentioned, in Skilder's life as a theologian of unity, saw a major um, split in the life of the church. So I, I just would love to hear your thoughts on that. If you could flesh out maybe a little bit about how Skilder understood this theology of unity and what that what that did to him as well in the split was one thing I was curious about is emotionally and psychologically, how did he handle that? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting contrast in, uh, in, in Schilder indeed. Um, and I think it's also good to point out that, well, Kuiper was also responsible for a schism. So the, the, also, also a unity, but I mean, the, 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 the schismatic element in New Calvinism is, is, uh, is, is deeper maybe. Um, yeah. Although I think unity is, is indeed what, 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 he, what he tried to do. And, and I think that the schism has a lot to do with Schilder's polemics. Um, he was he was a polemical author. Uh, he, he, if, if you read him, you see that right away. He, he he's always fighting someone, and and for him that was really a part of maybe a little bit of, of what James said that it's uh, that what James mentioned that it should not be that it's not easy or or cheap or uh, to to live as a Christian to live in the covenant. It's always there's always a mandate. There's always a duty. There's always a strife when you live as a Christian, um, and for him that also meant that there needed to be polemics. And, and he made a strong separation between person and matter, person and business, which is, doesn't work um, because he, through that he made a lot of enemies. But for him, it was part of, it, it, was, it has a theological meaning, the polemics, but it, it, it made the climate in the churches uh, worse. And it was not just him, but there were, there were many others who did it as well, but he did it, did it too. Um, so yeah, he, he wanted unity, uh, but then ended up um, ended up being being um, being deposed as a minister and professor, and then and then he he took the initiative of starting a new church. So yeah, I think they have they have different causes, um, but yeah, that, that is definitely an, an, an irony in his uh, in his life, his, in his biography. So I have a, a follow on question directly from that. When I first moved to the Netherlands in 2010, I knew next to nothing about Klaas Schilder, um, and then I learned a lot. Uh, or I tried to glean something about him from going to a, a Freigemacht uh, congregation. So the Freimaking was the, the liberation, it was the secession um, that, um, that Marinus mentioned that Schilder was at the core of. And before I had read any Schilder, um, the impression that I picked up from people was that, that Christians in, in his church, um, church line were trying to process a lot of his ecclesiology and an idea that I was introduced to by a lot of people at church in the Netherlands in, in a liberated reformed church was the true church doctrine. And I would hear this attributed a lot to Schilder. Um, that, um, and, and this was completely foreign to me ecclesiologically uh, coming from the, the Westminster Confession background that I did in Scotland and in Presbyterianism. So in the Westminster Confession of Faith, you, you really have that, like a spectrum idea of churches in terms of their the relative purity to to the christian faith and there are some churches that are more pure than others and less pure and you there there's there's no perfect church on earth you do have a part of that spectrum in the westminster confession where like there are churches that become so impure that they are synagogues of satan like it calls them but you know apart from that extreme you you, you just get if you if this is if this is what informs your imagination about the church you have a, a lot of like overlap to move within and it's, and it's very foreign to a like, true church, um, you're in or you're out kind of ideal. Um, so that was my, my initial, uh, I guess, exposure to the reception of Schilder's ideas. So I'm really curious to know, Marinus, how that, um, you know, the true church ecclesiology fits in with the story of Schilder and the church and Corey's question about unity. And the other impression that I got from talking to, or trying to learn about Schilder from people first before reading Schilder, was the idea that the truth is one garment um, woven of a single thread and you know when you start to tug at it then you know the whole thing unravels so then christianity takes on this um you know so there aren't really doctrines of primary and secondary importance everything feels very kind of equally equally weighted and equally significant and christianity becomes a, this, a kind of package deal in that sense um so i'm curious to know if you could address that issue as well um how you handle that in Schilder's thoughts. Yeah, so these are these are really two like very common misunderstandings of Schilder in the Netherlands, which you know, but I mean, you, you can see you've lived in the Netherlands for some time that you that you that you know about these. And um, 
and I think there are misunderstandings, and I'll, I'll try to briefly explain why I think they are. Um, so Schilder was received through the lens of the schism, understandably so, because he became the leader of it, because his, his reception just became completely dominated by it. So people would read him through the liberated churches and through how they read Schilder. Um, and I think they misread him in many ways. Um, and this is especially one of the true church is such a misreading, not in the sense that, that, that there's nothing from Schilder to draw from on that, there is. And um, I think it is a tangent in his ecclesiology where they draw like just one part from and forgot about another, another pole of the tension. Um, so the, maybe just for some background about the true church. So that's a, that's a, diff, a confessional difference also between, uh, between the continent and, um, and the US and the UK, uh, because we don't have the Westminster Confession, we have the Belgic Confession, uh, which is also a Geneva, is, is also an, a Calvinistic confession. And there we have in the articles, there's no speech of the invisible church as it is in the Westminster Confession. But we do, there is speak about uh, the true church and the false church. Um, and of course, that, that, that has to be read in the context of the, of the Reformation, but a false church is the, uh, is the Roman Catholic Church and the true church is the Reformed Church. Um, and so what Schilder wants to do for him, the confessions are very important. He, 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 he wanted to be a confessional theologian. So he always goes back to the confession and try to read it. And I think that is one of the reasons why the idea of the true church uh, becomes for Schilder um, a notion where he deals with and writes about. Um, but you need to tie it with the other end of the pole, which is, so there's this true church idea, but there's also this dynamic church idea. So for him, the church is something dynamic that is always changing and moving towards a certain, in a certain direction and moving along with how Christ is moving through history. So this makes the church into a dynamic entity that's always changing. Um, and also change, it can change its doctrines and change its confessions. Um, like I've pointed to that earlier, the reformed churches had also done at some point. Um, so, and if you take it in the dynamic way, you, you should, the, the, the speaking of the true church needs to be paired with speaking of the dynamic church. So uh, the true church is eschatological for Schilder ultimately. So, but you can say that a certain church um, is, is, a, is, is a true church in some ways, but you have always need the eschatological reservation and the where are we moving to and are we moving towards unity? And are we going where Christ is going? Um, so th th that is a very important reservation, I think, and a, and a difference. And in some ways, the true church is something that is not yet finished. We will have the true church only when uh, Christ comes back and unites his church. for the. And there's finally this church unity where the church is aspiring at. Um, so I think that, that, that is a, a part of it that's, that's often forgotten. Um, but yes, he, he does say that it is important what church you are going. Um, and so he has this notion also of the legal church, which is a little different from the true church. Um, and, and, and I think that has, well, that has, that may have some, some implications that, that make that some churches very arrogantly uh, say towards others, which we are the true church and you are a false church. Um, and and there, are, there are strands in his thought where, that, that give reason for such arguments. Um, so that on your first question, and then the second, the second one, I think, uh, like that—that's the idea of the adiaphora, uh, which means like, are there parts in ethics and in theology that just doesn't don't matter so much? Um, that and and then can we make a separation between things that matter and things that matter less? Uh, and Schilder would argue against that, not by saying that there is no adiaphora at all, um, but again, I think we, we need to put this into the context where he was in. And, and this is him, again, pushing back against a too, too much um, laid back Christianity, which is says like, well, it doesn't really matter as much how we deal with that. Or we don't need to try to see the connection between the confession and how we do politics. Um, let's, just, let's just relax a little bit and, and not, not, not push it too hard. And then he wants, and so I think you should read it Again, it's a critique of how sphere sovereignty again was used. Like we are trying to separate sections of life and try to try to put a, put a kind of dualism in, um, whether it's the church part and there is the normal part of life, and they should not interfere with each other. And then Schilder says, well, no, life is one. Um, so we shouldn't, so if you start to 
if you start to, to change something in a certain field, this has implications for the other side, like theology and ethics, not separated, uh, as as Carl as, as Barty would say, but keep them close together. Um, so I think that is how you should, where it comes from, why he argues that. And of course, if you take that to an extreme, which has been done, uh, they, then, then it, it can become very static um, and, and even conservative and not open for, for changes. So I guess a two-parter question here, Marinus. Do you think that Schilder's critique of sphere sovereignty and these classical neo-Calvinistic themes is successful? Do you think that sphere sovereignty leads to the insipid secularization of Holland that, that, that Schilder perhaps feared that it might lead to? And also, secondly, you know, you mentioned Barth there, and part of the value of reading Schilder is seeing a later neo-Calvinist interact with theology of Karl Barth. Do you think that he was just an opponent of Barth? Do you think that he learned from Barth? I'm thinking specifically of his section on his, uh, well, you, you titled it as his no to natural theology, his nay, right, you know, that corresponds to Barth's nine. Um, so what do you think of that? What do you think of his critique of and also interaction with Karl Barth? I think Schilder was right with sphere sovereignty and also, um, I, I don't know, I, I don't think he was successful, but I think he was right. Um, so, and his lack of success was mostly because I think of his fierce polemics, which is were not very helpful in building bridges, but maybe even widened the gap within the ranks of neo-Calvinism. So much of his polemics were with Bart and Barthians, but also with other neo-Calvinists. So H.S. Kuiper, Abraham Kuiper's son, who became a professor at the Free University, uh, Valentine Hepp, um, who was the successor of Herman Bavink uh, at the Free University, they were two of his key opponents. Um, and so, yeah, um, he, he wasn't very successful, but also because of the schism, uh, which, which made his perception very narrow. And I think only until now where there's some more, no, where he starts to have a, have a little bit more uh, a wider audience again, he, he just didn't have that. Um, but was he right? Yeah, I, I think he was kind of right because it, it was, and it happened like in, in the 60s after he died, the, 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 the churches of, of Kuiper and Bavik, the reformed churches, like very quickly, um, Open, so to speak, and and well, and look at the history of the pre university, for example, that that very quickly uh, after the war became um, well secularized, kind of um, because he he just uh, um, and and the connection with the church at the free university never had, I think, was was probably one of the reasons why it did. Um, so yes, I think he was um, he was right in doing that, but 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 not very successful. Um, and interestingly, in contemporary North American uh, New Calvinism, you have you see similar critiques. I mean, um, if you take the work of Jamie Smith, for example, he he has similar problems uh, with certain trends of New Calvinism in the use of common grace, in the use of sphere sovereignty, which downplay the importance of the church, and and also in his view, like downplay the the unity of, the, of, of of Christian life. So, yeah, I think it 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 really is a is a is a valuable critique, and that which, which is still visible today. Um, and then your second question was about Karl Barth. <laughs> yeah, so may, maybe it's good to, to hear you, you guys also, but you, you've been reading the reader a little bit and also, and also in, in, in you especially, Gray, read the section on natural theology um, and, and nuanced a little bit the way I framed, uh, the way I framed Schilder there. Um, but just as, as a, brief, um, a brief overview of how, of how, how, how his relation to Barth was. Um, so he, I think he, he, he led the rhetoric to the Romans pretty early. I think it came in the, to the Netherlands uh, not very soon after it was published in the 1920s. And he read it, and I think he loved it when he first read it. And we, we, we know that because um, that's an article that's in the reader, Eros or Christ. There he quotes the letter to the Romans favorably. He says, this is a great example of another reformed scholar who says what I says, say similarly. And he points to, he, quote, he quotes Karl Barth in the letter to the Romans. On top of that, there's a lot of similarity between Bart and Schilder. Um, same context, both reaction to um, the, the First World War uh, and lived through the same time. If you read Schilder's early meditations, they, they, have a, they have a strong Barthian feel to it in the way that the hiddenness of God, for example, just as in the letter to the Romans, like the, the, the problem of the war, how can we still relate God to history? How can we still speak of that? The, the idea of the... Of a, that, the, that the, the Christianity of the 19th century was failed and we needed something new. These are things you find in Barth and very similarly you find in, in Schilder. Of course, there's difference also already there. 
um, but there are similarities. And then in 1926, there is a synod in the Netherlands in the Reformed Church, it's the Synod of Assen, um, and it's about the doctrine of scripture. Um, and Schilder there defends the synod, saying that it was, it was well, it's just too much to go into detail now, I think, but it wasn't the perspicuity of scripture. Schilder defends the perspicuity, the clarity of scripture. Um, and then all of a sudden we have his Barthian colleagues who attack, who use Karl Barth to attack the synod. So, and then his view on Barth changes completely and he just, and he becomes very suspicious. And from that moment onwards, he starts to critique Barth. And we have a number of articles in the reader um, on the paradox, for example, because that's what uh, the Dutch Barthian uh, Heikema uses against, against the synod's decision, against Schilder. No, when we talk about revelation, we have to talk about paradox as well. It's, a, it's in fact something that's only in the early Bart. Bart later distanced himself from that notion. Um, but so on the topic of revelation, he becomes very critical. Let's say with Bart, we have these two kinds of history um, and, and God is only transcendent and no longer immanent. God is no longer in history. And also we don't have his revelation available to us in history. He starts to see Bart as a dualist and this as an enemy of new Calvinism. And that dominates how he will view Bart for the rest of his life. Um, and which I think therefore misses also many um, points of connection there. And thinking about the essays in the reader, particularly on, on Bart, two, two essays that I think work really well together as a pair are the essay on Eros and Christ that you just mentioned and the essay on Bart and secularization. So the, the Eros, and, Eros and Christ essay is written when Schilder was quite young, as Marinus was saying. And um, you know, it's, it's the essay, as we just heard, where he quotes the, the Romer brief, the Bart's breakthrough book, where he unleashes this devastating criticism of liberal theology. And you know, you know if, if you are theologically not a classical 19th century liberal, Bart's Epistle to the Romans is a really easy book to like. You know, it, it's, it's a great devastating work of deconstruction. Um, and you can see the influence there. You know, Gray was just asking, how, does he, how do we see him learning from Bart? And you can see that he learns from Bart there in Eros and Christ. Because I guess the, the, the issue that Bart is trying to destroy in his book on the Epistle to the, to the Romans is the idea that, that you can make Jesus into the patron saint of whichever earthly cause you want. Um, if you look at Bart's later critiques of 19th century theology, you know, he'll argue that this approach to Jesus can make him support pretty much anything from like, moralistic enlightenment Kantianism to um, to the Prussian war effort, to, um, I mean, anything, like the whole of the 19th century, Christ is this pliable figure who's being remolded all the time, and he's everybody's patron saint for all these causes that clash. And Bart is trying to extricate Jesus from that and, and have a more elevated Jesus who, who flies above all of those earthly clashes. And as a critique, it's it's really powerful and devastating. And you can see the influence of that on the young Schilder, where in the in the Eros and Christ essay, um, Jesus is being reinvented as the patron saint of love, and um, and it's or the patron saint of Eros um, as a very kind of in that context, that's a modern way of thinking about love, an increasingly secularized way of thinking about love. Um, and I think that the essay on its own also makes stunning reading today. Because you know we live you know the best part of a century on, um, but in secular Western culture, we we see politicians who legislate um, on the basis of love. For example, uh, you hear this all the time. But um, um, so if you think of, for example, changes in the law about marriage, uh, at least in a Scottish context, in the past, you know, politicians would never have, or legislators would never have spoken about their role as being to legislate for love. Marriage is a social contract, and you know, but it's not really a politician's role or a legislator's role to talk about love. That's that's a different sphere, you could say, in Kuiperian terms. Um, but now politicians talk about love all the time as the basis for what they do. But then you, when you hear people probe, okay, so what is love? You end up with like tautological, well, love is love reasoning, where they're not really able to get very far with talking about the substance of love. Um, but there's there's a great line at the start of that essay where Schilder contrasts. Um, 
love as the reason to fulfill the law with love itself being the fulfillment of the law and we live in a culture that is the second or that sees itself as like the second option and he gives this amazing critique of that in his own context so he's trying to extricate christ from being the patron saint of a worldly cause along with the young karl barth but the second essay to read along with that is the later essay on barthianism and secularization i think the title is where he's a bit older and um Schilder is and he has this also very striking critique of Barthian thought as being uh, something that promotes actually secularization rather than any kind of Christian engagement with culture that changes the world. Um, where, you know, Christ has been so thoroughly like, extricated from, like Christ has been saved from the world, but then that Christ doesn't really do much to save the world in the here and now. Um, so he's no one's patron saint, but he's also, he, 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 there's, there's very little cause for Christian agency in the world to change things in Christ's name. And um, there I think, you know, you see Schilder actually has quite similar critical instincts towards Bart later in life as actually a lot of other figures. I mean, when I read these essays together, I also thought of James Cohn, to take a really different theological example, who wants to fight against um, against racism in a North American context, the young James Cohn turns to Karl Barth and also finds a, a similar kind of compelling power for why you can't make Christ the patron saint of, of racism or white supremacy or human enslavement or anything like that. But he doesn't have to wrestle with Barth for too long before he realizes, okay, you know, Barth is useful for the critique, but he doesn't, but Cohn doesn't really find something that's useful in the long term as a solution. So instead, you get a very passive account of, of you know, what we do with our humanity or how we think about ethics. And that's actually just a long-standing fault in Bart's thought that so many people have come across from so many different angles. And I think that it's really interesting to see that there's a neo-Calvinist critique from someone who's really sympathetic at the beginning as well. But the longer he has to think through Bart's theology, the more he, he actually concludes this is a secularizing theology. Yeah, thanks, James. That's a really helpful idea. I wanted to go back to just discussions about Skoder's notion of the church and sphere sovereignty again. Um, you talked, we talked a little bit about his critique of sphere sovereignty. And I mean, one of the questions that pops up with that is if he's right, then, you know, how then should we live becomes the question. And one of the ways that you framed it actually in your introduction to Skilder. Uh, in the reader is you basically say that the topics at the heart of all of Skilder's theology can be whittled down into four questions, and they are basically the questions that relate to um, how, how ought the church relate to the culture. You, you ask, what is the position of the church and society? How should a secular context be evaluated? How does Christ relate to culture? And what cultural, what cultural responsibility does a Christian have? So, what are the answers to those questions, Marinus? How, how should Christ relate to culture in Skilder's theology? And how, how, how then should we? Yeah. Um, yeah, so if, if just coming back to the idea of sphere sovereignty, so what, what he does, I think, is um, it, I think, push back against the idea that the church is one of the spheres that has some kind of separateness from the other spheres. And I think this is never what Kuiper wanted to say, that the spheres are... Uh, independent of each other, that they, I think in his view they also should be strongly connected. I mean, the idea of the unity of life, which is important for the earlier generation as, as for Schilder. Um, but so, but still, I think the idea of the spheres is, is not away from Schilder. For example, um, I, I did mention this, there's also a, a section in the reader that, that talks about that, is that especially the early Schilder engages engage with art a lot. I think he saw it as his responsibility. And he, write, he writes that explicitly that neo-Calvinism or Calvinism needed also, and he says Kuiper didn't go far enough along that line, needed to develop, like go into arts more and develop more writing and thought about what it means to do art as a Calvinist. And I think Eros of, Eros of Christ, is the, that article is a part of that, that endeavor of Schilder. Um, and others have said that, that, that Christ in his suffering, which has been translated a long time ago, is also part of that, of a, a kind of a poetic uh, way of, of doing, well, doing what he says should be done in the article Errors of Christ, namely um, writing Christian poetry. Um, 
So th that's, I think, an example of how, how he thought that culture is very important and also this, this fear should have this, uh, something separate and, and some things on its own um, with own, own values, but not disconnected from, um, from the church and, and the confession. And I think that is, that is then the way how Schilder sees that relation is while Kuiper uh, used principles, he said that every sphere, for example, the state also in, the, in science needed to be built on reformed principles. Um, and well, what George Harrick has also said when he was here a couple of episodes ago is that that, that idea of the principles was difficult to develop and, and, and never really worked out really, at least in his view. Um, and in the history of the Free University, I think shows also how difficult it is. And then Kuip Schilder wants to replace, I think, the principles as, as guiding by kind of the church with the confession as the hub or the heart of the spheres of the life where every person um, is, as it were, um, loaded from above with the word of God, uh, shaped, as it were, and by the confession, is taught the confession, and then goes out into the world, and that's where the person has to be, hence the, the cultural mandate. Um, that is for Schilder. Um, uh, the, I think that word, the cultural mandate, is first uh, written down by Schilder in his book, Christ and Culture, um, and the, and that is the goal of life ultimately. So the church is the church is kind of kind of instrumental in that way in making the people go out there into all those different spheres where they have to fulfill their duty, so to speak, or do the cultural mandate on their own field, on their own terms. Uh, but the link between the two is through the fact that this person is a, con a person who confesses um, and 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 is tied to that confession so to speak, in the church and through the, through the word of God. Um, so, yeah, I think that's how he, like, doesn't, doesn't completely push back against sphere sovereignty, but just wants to change it a little bit. Um, so the church as an institution um, becomes central and also gets the value he thinks the church as an institution needs. Yeah, I do think that one way to characterize Schilder then to the neo-Calvinist tradition is that he calls it toward greater consistency, at least as in his, his own view of it, right? So with regard to sphere sovereignty, as you're saying it here, he's not rejecting the concept. And in fact, if Kuiper were alive and he would see Schilder's writings on it, you're saying that Kuiper would ultimately agree because he's saying that the spheres are not separate, that the spheres uh, ultimately come together under an organic unity. And I think when we take a look at his text on natural theology, you mentioned I was wrestling with it. Um, Schilder sees this fine distinction with the neo-Calvinism in Kuiper and Boving uh, between natural revelation or general revelation on the one hand and natural theology on the other. Natural revelation is God's work in the human heart. It creates affects, whereas natural theology is our human reception of it in reasoning. So what we take from God uh, in a precognitive way, we end up propositionalizing it, we thematize it into our own sort of rational framework. And Schilder says that even though this is a good distinction, um, what we see in Kuiper and Bavink is a conflation sometimes still between natural revelation and natural theology. So I, I'd argue that he's not actually against natural revelation, he's just against the conflation of natural revelation and natural theology and a kind of calling the Bavinkians and the Kuiperians toward a greater consistency of affirming that sort of distinction. Um, but, but however, I wonder sometimes if he gets lost in the polemics of it, uh, he writes in such an occasional way that it seems like as he's rejecting, say the work of natural theology in Schilder's mind, he's also at times seemingly rejecting the concept of natural revelation. So I wonder what your thoughts are about Schilder as a polemicist. You mentioned that his critique of sphere sovereignty is good but not successful because he was such a polemical figure so maybe talk a little bit about his view of polemics its necessity how to do it and whether we can learn from it whether he was successful and talk as well in this context about his his position as a preacher how was he as a preacher um did that sort of view of polemics bleed into his way of preaching yeah it's it's a that's that's a great question and just very important for everyone who's going to read schilder is to to understand and to not take what he says too quickly uh, because there's so much rhetoric in it. So his Dutch actually is, 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 is not very accessible right now even for native speakers. 
Bavik and Kuiper are easy, more easy to read in Dutch than Schilder is. And that's because his language, uh, I'm talking about being mother and orthodox at the same time, um, is so much the language of the time. He, he was so sensitive to the culture he was in. Um, and th that you can see in the, the, the poets and literary works, the philosophers that he quotes, um, he was very much up to date what was going on and interacts with all that. And his language was also that way. And I think the polemics um, are part of that. So Dutch society was highly polemical in the time. We have uh, literary authors who were also known for their fierce polemics in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, so it, this is really part of a cultural atmosphere where Schilder was in, a cultural climate. Um, but it's really important to, 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 to see it and to not too quickly take him for what he, what he says, because he can, he can in, the, in all the rhetoric say, we should get rid of common grace. Uh, there is no such thing as general revelation when we read Romans 1. Um, but then if you read closely, uh, as I think was also your experience and, and mine as well, you see that he doesn't actually want to get rid of the concept entirely, uh, but just wants to get at problems in the use he saw in the concept. Uh, and this uses the polemical rhetoric to get the message across. I mean, you, you also have to see of him as a journalist in some ways. Like he, many of his writings, also the one we now have in the reader, were part of an ecclesial weekly. They were just part of an ongoing debate within the churches for normal church people to read. Um, and they, they, they are like a player in that field. And, and le much less of his work is more like more quiet, bathing like theological reflection, just meant for a dogmatics handbook for maybe using seminary. So, uh, we have that of Schilder as well, but much is, is, is in the heat of the debate. So yeah, I think that that's important to know. And, and if you can learn from it, well, I think a lot of his polemical style we should not learn um, or take over especially not in North American context, because it's already so, uh, well, you've talked about, we've talked, we've talked about that last episode or a couple of episodes ago, uh, the polemics are already so heated and, and problematic in many ways. Um, although I sometimes think in my Dutch context, we do need a little bit more of polemics, uh, and maybe not uh, culturally, but in the church, because I, I sometimes see a tendency to be, to, to, to stop, to like completely stop disagreeing over anything and just say, well, we should, we should stop the splits, which we should, of course, but we should stop fighting, we should stop disagreeing and just like, which doesn't really work because if you disagree and if you, uh, if, if you see problems in someone else's side, it, it needs to be addressed. So for my context, I think it, we, we could use some theological polemics at times, um, honesty, and also say, well, I think what you, what you think or what you argue is problematic for this and this reason. Not necessarily taken over Schilder's style, but taken over his theological necessity of polemics. Um, so, and then your second question was Schilder as a preacher. Um, yeah, it's 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 fun to say something about that. I mean, I just in his in his cultural view, the institution of the church becomes very central and key, and that also connected, I think, to who he was as a preacher. I mean, he was a considered a fantastic preacher in his time, very popular. Um, there's there are these stories of where so like. In the, the Dutch uh, Reformed churches, you would have, like, for example, in the big city, have several locations which all belong to the one church. And when Schilder would preach in one of those churches, all the others would be empty. And the, the one church where he was would be like filled to the brim with people sitting on the benches and standing in the sides. And so he was really considered a, 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 a sublime preacher. Um, and we have many of his sermons. And well, I think I think Corey had also the same uh, the same uh, uh, impression. You can you can share that when you when you read his sermons. They're, they they still are really uh, worthwhile even today. Um, and so I think some of the retained some of the strength they had uh, back then. And he, and he also wrote about it. There, there's a section in the reader on um, redemptive historical preaching where, where I think he also contributed to the to that field that, that was an ongoing uh, part of the New Calvinist tradition. Yeah, that's all really helpful. Um, I guess it, it, the, what you were saying there takes us back to, um, well, James K. Smith's, James K. Smith's comment on him as Neo-Calvinism's loyal opposition. And I think, you know, what you see with Klaas Schilder is, which we can all learn from, is that he inhabits a tradition and to inhabit a tradition is to explore it, to push its boundaries where necessary, but also to be at home within it. Um, 
And that's also part of being a confessional theologian as well. So I think he, he sets a striking example of all of those in, in how he receives earlier doctrines within the Neo-Calvinist tradition. Like I found reading him on Common Grace was, was really helpful um, in the, the, the challenges that he poses for how people can misuse Common Grace. And they themselves are interesting windows into history. And um, um, for example, you know the, the, the way that he frames it is to say, um, if all you do with the doctrine of common grace is work out, okay, you know, how far can I go? Um, how far can I participate and fit into the world? How can common grace help me to, to blend in? Then you have missed the point of the doctrine and you may as well not have it um, because you've completely overlooked the reality of the Christian life, which, as you said, Marinus, is always about struggle. It's always in a fallen world. And... Um, uh, you, so you, you've forgotten your mission, actually. You've lost your sense of vocation in the world if you reduce common grace to a kind of camouflage um, in, in, within culture. Um, I think those kinds of challenges are actually, they're very helpful and they're, they're really essential, actually, for people who you know discover the doctrine of common grace. And I, I wish the 18-year-old me had, had read Class Hilder on this point when I first discovered common grace and thought, well, this is great. This makes so much sense of participation in the world. But you do need a counterbalance to that um, of remembering the, the the awkwardness of believing the doctrine of common grace within the world as well. I wanted to talk a little bit about his exact argument for why common grace is an inappropriate term for what he understands to be the possibility of cultural common life. And I, I think I understand him correctly. I read his essay on common grace that he delivered from a lecture he gave in the United States and his trip, I believe that was 1939. Is that right? Yeah. And his argument is really fascinating. It, it seems to me, and, I, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, Marinus, that he's, what he's doing is saying the reason that he doesn't want to call the possibility of the common of that which Christian and non-Christian share, the possi possibility of uh, what we would think of as civic righteousness, it's not, it cannot be spoken of in the language of grace because the language of grace is to claim that you understand the disposition of God towards a particular person. And what he seems to be saying is that a biblical understanding of uh, anthropomorphism doesn't allow for that. Uh, that when you see the term grace or love in scripture to suggest that you can come to a universal idea of God's disposition towards any particular individual at all would be to commit the fallacy, the failure of not recognizing the anthropomorphic nature of scripture, right? And I, I think he, he argues that you know, to look at the word grace or favor in scripture towards, um, in a way, or love or desire that God desires all men to be saved or something like that, and to use that to suggest that there's a common disposition of love towards all people. He, he says that you would have to say the same thing in the Bible about uh, when, God, when it says that God laments or God, God regrets, you would have to assume the literal truth of the same exact, of, of a similar concept, right? Or, 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 or of that concept. So to accept the idea that God loves everyone um, through something called grace is to fail to see the anthropomorphic lens of, of, of the Bible. And, and so that's why it seems to me, because he wants to view it from the doctrine of God and the Im imperceptibility uh, he says we're, we're disallowed. Is that, is that the argument? Is that, is that, uh, is that what he, what he argues? Yeah, I think you've put it, uh, you've put it in a great way. Although I would say that that is one part, uh, that is one part of his critique and of his argument. I'll say something of the second part later. Um, but yeah, I think you're, you're quite right. And this is actually a, a, a refrain or a, a, a strand throughout his writings that he critiques his tradition, Kuiper, especially often on doing theology too much from empirical observations. So he, he and, and then he, he would make like the change and say, well, no, we, we should not start there, um, but, but we should reason theologically. 
and think about, okay, how does this relate to the doctrine of God? And then do it again. Um, and then start to, to, to build our theology from there. The, his critique on the visible and invisible church is, is, is very similar. Um, he also says take the distinction becomes from looking from below, looking to the church and saying, well, we have, um, we have all these different denominations and then how can they all, and they're all believers in there, but church, so there should be an invisible church. Um, uh, and we, we need this distinction. They would say, well, no, you, you don't need this distinction if you look like from God's perspective, because then you get this dynamic view, which I talked about earlier, saying that all those churches are like on a movement through history and will come together. And you don't need to talk about invisible church, but just need a church about the development of history. Um, so that, that's another example of how we use the critique. And he does the same with common grace, saying that it's, it's just too much looked from an empirical perspective and indeed neglecting the anthropomorphic character of scripture, that not every time when something is said about God, and the, 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 the example you pointed to as well about God's remorse, you sometimes find in scripture, you would say, well, doesn't that mean that there's change in God? I mean, an article, the first article of the Belgian Confession says there's not. Um, so, and then he, he says, well, there we don't do it, so we shouldn't do it either or another part. So I think you have put that, 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 that correctly. Um, and maybe add to that then that, that, so not only doctrine of God, but also doctrine of predestination then. Um, which is of course tied to it, but that, 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 is, that is the conflict. There is a conflict between calling um, commonness grace with the, the doctrine of predestination, on which I think Schilder is, is more on the supra side, although he denies that. Um, but that's, that's maybe another discussion. So yeah, and then, but that's one part of the argument, which I would call the theological objection against common grace, but the, I think just as important as the one where James mentioned too, is the, more the practical problem with common grace, and that it makes people um, it makes people lazy. It just is used in, in ways to downplay the importance of the mandates, the objective God gives. So therefore, he says, if you talk about culture, uh, if and we use the word grace, it's just not very helpful because we forget about the mandate. If we talk about start from the mandate, from the cultural mandate in Genesis two, we will also end up never neglecting culture because that's where God wants to be. But we don't need the, we, we do not have like the side effects of the idea of common grace. Um, so yeah, I think you have, you, you, you have put it rightly. And, and this is, this is like the essence of his critique, these two, these two elements. So the, this, the Schilder reader, the official title is, is I think, Class Schilder, the Essential Theological Writings. Yeah. So uh, listeners can't see, but it's a beautiful book. It's, it's beautifully produced by Lexham Press. It has a lovely portrait on the cover. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about how the reader came together? This obviously wasn't, you know, whipped up in 15 minutes. It's been a lot of work. Um, so, you know, tell us about the genesis of the book, um, how you selected the texts. So you edited it together with George Haddink and Rich Mow. Um, but, you know, Schilder left behind so much material, so, and, and you can only choose so much of it. So. Just give us an overview of, of how you selected what ended up there. Yeah, thanks for the question. So we, we started, the, the first talk started seven years ago already. I had to look back into my email when we started all this. Um, and so, so yeah, so I, I was working on my, my dissertation on Class Schilder, which has not yet been published, but you, you can find the PDF. Um, I'll, I'll put a link. Um, so I, I was working on that and then um, we, well, George Haring, who was my, my supervisor, and, and me, we had this talk, well, should we try to get a, to get, make Schilder more available uh, to, an, to an international readership, since there's so much interest now in New Calvinism, Kuiper and Bavik, and it would really be a great contribution to that debate if you also had like this critical second generation voice, adding some questions and some continuation, and also the historical continuity is very interesting. I mean, how did the new Calvinist tradition developed into the 20th century where so much happened, the wars, first, second world war crises, uh, facing with national socialism, et cetera. Um, so we saw, so we thought, let's, let's, let's try if we can get that going. Um, well, and then this this whole project of finding good translators um, and, and, and a publisher, of course, and we're very grateful to uh, Lexham Press for taking on them the, the publication and they've done a, a fantastic job. And so just a quick overview of it, for it's, it's obviously complicated to make a selection of the entire oeuvre. So let me just quickly scan through the, the, um, through the parts of the book. Um, 
So the, the first is the American lectures, that it's actually the lectures Schilder held in the United States. So they were, we have them only in Dutch as notes taken by students when he did those lectures in the Netherlands. But that, that was kind of his message for the United States, for North America. So we started fitting to when we translate to English to start with that. And it, it immediately covers a number of those main uh, critiques he has on, on neo-Calvinism, such as common grace, but also covenant, for example, which I haven't talked about at all. Uh, but there's a lot there as well. Uh, the church is there. Um, and then the next sections we have like divided onto to, to themes we think are like for contemporary interest are, 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 are interesting. So we, we, we really try to select from, from an angle in the present uh, to make it connect to debates that are going on right now, to interest, to, to, to make connection to other theologians as well. Um, so therefore we did common grace and culture and there's the strong connection with, with Abraham Kuyper, obviously, and his engagement. Um, and the, the, then there's a section on the church, and that's mostly because it's just so important in his thought, but also today. Uh, I mean, I also mentioned J, uh, James uh, James K. Smith, who, who has very similar critiques to Schilder. I mean, the the, the idea of a strong ecclesiology is, is is all over the place. Um, and then there's a section on Karl Barth, well, which is an obvious figure because he is just such an influential theologian and a contemporary. So how did you interact there? Then there's redemption history which is um, well on, on preaching and also an important feature of the new Calvin tradition, um, Gerhardus Voss, for example, which he builds. Um, and then finally, we have a few articles, we haven't talked about that as much, uh, about the war. So that's more like the historical, uh, an historical component. And, and so what, what we put in there are the articles he wrote uh, during the first month of the German invasion in the Netherlands, where he was really one of the, remarkably one of the first ones to call for opposition against the National Socialists. Um, and and these, 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 these articles had a national impact uh, on, on, on many people, even outside of his churches. Uh, and he was incarcerated also for that a couple of months after these art articles were published. And his weekly, the Reformatie was, uh, was put out of print and they were, um, um, was forbidden to publish anymore during the war. But these are just a great example of like how how did Schilder and New Calvinism fare in the war? Because they're, they're also examples of um, other, of New Calvinists taking different positions uh, towards the German occupation. So it's, it's just great to have that, that, that historical part also. So the, the, these, these themes have guided our selection of texts. And of course, there's a lot more. And in fact, we are talking now about uh, doing What is the Hemel, uh, his book about heaven, which is, I think, his, his best dogmatic. Schilder's best dogmatic work uh, is about a lot more than just having this more theology of, of culture, of history, also eschatology. Um, so we hope that will be appearing not in seven years, but hopefully a little bit earlier. Um, yeah. So prior to the reader, the main texts by Schilder that were available in English, well, that was probably Christ and his, his sufferings, Christus and Leiden. I forget what the official English title is, but... Uh, really rich reflections on the the sufferings of of Christ, um, but it's terrific to have the reader uh, uh, such a polished work that covers this range of topics. So it's been a, a real treat to get to to read it anyway, but also to be able to talk with Marinas about this. Um, to our listeners, thank you again for joining us, um, and uh, please do rate the app, uh, uh, not rate the app, uh, <laughs> please do rate the podcast in whichever podcast app you use. Um, it, it really makes a difference in helping others find the podcast, um, and please subscribe to it if you haven't done so yet. Uh, as always, we're happy for people to reach out to us on social media or via our email address, which is graceandcommonpodcast at gmail.com. Is that correct, Corey, or is there the in front? Just Grace and Common Podcast. By the end of season nine or whatever, I will finally have we've got this down. So Grace and Common Podcast at gmail.com. But for now, thank you again for joining us. This is Grace and Common.